The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders, weeknights at 6 on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Nick Burns has the night off. Coming up this hour, Utah poet and writer Catherine Coles, whose new book, The Stranger I Become on Walking, Looking, and Writing, comes out next month. She'll be doing a virtual launch with the King's English. We'll get details about that. But ask her about walking, looking, and writing and what she's learned over the course of her career. I'm hoping she'll share some of it with us, give us a poetry reading or two. She's always generous with her work. Plus, the road home, a view from the front lines. We'll get a clip of their recent virtual conversation with Alicia Gleed. And also, Darlene McDonald, Utah Educational Equity Coalition, will be joining us during rallies and resources. But first, KRCL volunteer, Natalie Benoit. How are you doing? Good, Laura. It's always good to be here on Wednesdays for Radioactive. So looking at the uh, landscape, what do you have to share for rallies and resources? So I have three events that I'm going to talk about that I'm really excited about. So the first one is tomorrow on Thursday. And the fact that this event even exists is just really entertaining to me. It's the Mormon Psychedelic Summit. (laughs) So that's Thursday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. So it's all day long online event hosted by the Divine Assembly and the Utah Bee. You know that former state senator Steve Urquhart is part of that. He, uh, since leaving the Senate, has made a few changes in his life. I believe he's no longer a registered Republican, and he has started the Divine Assembly and a lot of psychedelics research. It's happening across the country, if not the globe, how psychedelics can help with with depression and other mental health issues with microdosing. So a lot to learn and applicable in our own community, Natalie. Great pick. Definitely. So again, that event is Thursday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., all online. And then a couple events I wanted to hit on coming up on Saturday. So this one's really interesting. It's the Pothole Promenade. Oh, yes. From 1 to 3 p.m. at Fairmont Park. That's 1049 East Sugarmont Drive in Salt Lake. And it's hosted by the Disabled Rights Action Committee. And it's really an event to raise awareness of, I mean, nobody likes potholes, right? Or nobody likes cracks in the sidewalk, uneven sidewalks where you've got like a tree root growing underneath. But it's even more of a problem for folks who have accessibility barriers who may, you know, use a wheelchair or have some other, you know, method of getting around town where those kinds of problems, the potholes and the cracks in the sidewalk, pose an even greater impediment to getting around the community. So that event, again, is from 1 to 3 p.m. at Fairmont Park. And then finally, another event on Saturday, there is an event to stand in solidarity with Palestine and Colombia, and that is at the Wallace Bennett Federal Building in downtown Salt Lake, and it is hosted by PSL Salt Lake, that's the Party for Socialism and Liberation for Salt Lake, and the Answer Coalition. So that's just an event to stand in solidarity with the protesters who are fighting for their rights in Palestine and Colombia at this point in time. And if you missed last night's show, we talked about that quite a bit, actually. Um, we had an artist that Tamrika Kaptisiashvili, one of our Tuesday uh, co-hosts, is working with uh, for an upcoming zine of poetry with women in Gaza and Palestine. And we checked in with Noor Alsaka on last night's show. So do check that out. A great conversation and also connected it, resurfaced the connection between what's going on in Palestine and the Black Lives Matter movement in Utah with Darlene McDonald, who is one of our guests, and she's coming up here in a minute. Perfect. It all comes full circle here on Radioactive. And one more thing I wanted to throw in, Nat. Um, Bike to Work Day is happening this week. It's Friday, May is bike month. You can celebrate Bike to Work Day with a green bike ride gratis, thanks to the generosity of Select Health. All green bike rides will not cost you anything on May 21st. There is a code, which is 2021, at any kiosk to take as many free 30-minute trips as you want. Those details can be found on the Radioactive Rallies and Resources page, like the ones you mentioned. Yep, everything can be found. Just go to krcl.org, click on the Community Affairs banner at the top there, and scroll down to Rallies and Resources. Natalie Benoit, thank you for your support and volunteering for Radioactive. Always good to be here, Laura. Thanks. As I said, Darlene McDonald on the show last night and making another appearance today because the Utah Educational Equity Coalition held a press conference earlier today. I asked her to Zoom with us and update us. And Darlene, between 
the time we recorded the show and it aired yesterday, the Utah legislature, which granted itself the power to call itself into session outside of the governor, did so because they didn't like that the governor left CRT and Second Amendment sanctuary bills off of the special session. Now, all they can do is run resolutions when they call themselves into session. And I'm curious, is that what your press conference was about? <laughs> that was exactly what the press conference was about. There, there's a lot of disinformation of, about CRT. And we knew that the governor, it was in the news that the governor was not going to add uh, CRT and the Second Amendment sanctuary to the agenda for the special session. So you know, we were like, okay, good, because there needs to be more education. We followed many people on Twitter. Well, I can't say we, I followed many people on Twitter who were um, talking about what was happening in the special session and that there was, they, they have voted to have a conversation and training around CRT, which, you know, like, okay, that passed unanimously. It's like, okay, that's kind of like stupid, but at the same time, we appreciated it because at least they're giving their themselves an opportunity to be taught the actual factual information about CRT with people who actually studies this, teach it, knows what they're talking about. That didn't happen. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in your press conference today with the Utah Educational Equity Coalition, first tell us about this coalition and then tell us what the, your message was. Absolutely. I am a social activist. I am not an educator. So I am not a member of the Utah Educational um, Equity Coalition. I am an activist who will elevate the voices of the Utah Educational Equity Coalition because their voice is necessary, needed. So I wanna make that clear. The coalition consists of educators who has decade, who have decades of studies and um, ed, um, experience, I gotta get this right, decades of experience teaching, not only teaching um, education, but teaching diversity, equity, and inclusion in schools and workplaces, they know what they're doing. So these are the people who should have been consulted prior to the Senate majority and the House majority releasing any type of statement, resolution, confirming, affirming, an understanding of us of something that they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. We're seeing a lot of pressure from the, the far right of the political aisle um, to push back against critical race theory, to push back against the New York Times and its 1619 project. And then I, I hear these clips on the evening news where our elected leaders are saying, we can't have anything that looks through the lens of race. But then they don't want to acknowledge the lens of race that has been on this country since its beginning. It's a fraught discussion, Darlene. It is. It is. And we didn't, we're trying to be careful with the messaging because their message is centered around disinformation. We don't want to run, we don't want to fall into that rabbit hole where you, you end up just talking past each other and yeah. not talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And we find that if you're talking to each other, it, it opens an opportunity to actually educate and learn from each other. Mm. So we don't want to fall into that trap. But because this resolution was released last night, we had to act quickly. So I'm living off of three hours of sleep right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is a resolution from uh, the supermajority, which is Republican in this state, yes. Um, yes. to suggest that we don't go down this rabbit hole of critical race theory. But the governor has made it clear the school state board of education is the proper place for this to be studied and they want to study it over the summer, right? Yes, they want to ban it. The resolution say ban. Lawmakers. Yeah, the, yeah, the resolution from the lawmakers, the, from the Republican Senate majority is to ban critical race theory in Utah public schools. Well, that just squelches conversation. 
And that's not it, local control. And critical race theory isn't taught in Utah public schools. Yeah. I mean, so you're banning something that doesn't exist. Yes. Yes. So that's that's problem number one. Problem number two, they're banning something they have no idea what it is. They, they want to ban something they haven't investigated. They haven't investigated. They are going on a conservative right-wing media interpretation of what critical race theory is. Mm-hmm. We have actually here in Utah a gentleman by the name of Lawrence Parker, and I don't think he'll mind me dropping his name, but he has written a book. He is called The Guru for Utah on critical race theory. So if the Utah legislature, Republican legislature, and even Republicans, I mean, Democrats as well, if they want to actually learn what CRT is, that's where they need to go. That's what mm. they should have done. But they're getting that's pressure what, from their constituents saying, we're seeing this conversation happening around the country. We don't want it in our schools. You need to do something about it. Yes. And what it is, in my opinion, and from what I saw, what I'm seeing. So I attended a town hall last night. Who was the town hall? <laughs> Who held this that? Is really, this is actually really hard. Um, there was a town hall that was hosted by Natalie Klein from the Utah Public School Board. And this is the same Natalie Klein who is concerned about LGBTQ indoctrination in schools. She's concerned about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is the same person. It was also hosted by, I believe, State Senator Kevin Stratton, if I'm saying his name correctly, and State Senator, don't know his first name, Christensen. Um, the town hall was a slew of disinformation. It was screenshot after screenshot, PowerPoint presentation after PowerPoint presentation based on disinformation. It, it was it was horrible. It was horrible to watch. I tried to just be a fly on the wall and I couldn't, I couldn't keep my mouth shut. Darling, I never <laughs> expect you to. <laughs> and I kept saying what you what you're doing and what you're advocating is not critical race theory. It really is a fear of diversity, equity, and inclusion training because of fear of how it makes them feel as a white person and the responsibility of a white person to be an ally when it comes to understanding racism and race racist behavior in the past and in the present mm-hmm. and to be able to speak to that. And the responsibility of being able to at least recognize what's past isn't past. What's past has come forward in what we now call systemic racism within our institution. You know, I get that pressure as a white person. And I'm sitting here talking to you, Darlene, an African-American woman going, hmm, how do I have this conversation when neither of us were alive in 1619? What does that mean today? And if you could speak to those folks and have them, you know, listen for a second in that town hall. What is it that you want someone uh, to understand about where to begin this conversation? This is the part that's going to get hard. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to um, try not to get emotional. So while I was at the press conference today, the counter protesters arrived with the children. There were children on the steps with signs that says, that read, CRT is racist. Stop abusing children. These kids, I'm a sh- I can pretty much sure bet my last dollar, they have no idea what CRT is. Unless they only know what their parents will tell them. They only know what their parents teach them. Racism is taught. First and foremost, racism is taught. I looked at those children and what came to my mind is when you see pictures of children wearing clan outfits. Is that what happened? No. Okay. That's what was in my mind Mm. because racism is taught. They stood in front of us to drown out our voices with signs, big signs, to cover our faces, to take up the space that we were standing in and not see that as racism. 
This is what they're teaching their children, how to take up the space of people of color and drown out their voices and dismiss them and dismiss their role and their space. That's what they're teaching their children. So they have these children standing there with signs to try to stand in front of us. And I, I'm not going to disrespect a child, but I tried to position my body to not let this child be seen while the parent was trying to move the child to cover me, to go around me so that they're seen and I'm not. Wow. And this yes. is this is the the I think a really low point in this conversation in our state as we've seen this critical race theory debate come closer and closer to home as lawmakers sit in special session this week, interim this month and throughout the coming summer months. What is it that you want them to know or 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 to do? Because on one hand, they're saying my constituents are emailing me and saying, do this, do this, do this. But I'm a constituent, you're a constituent, and you don't want them to do that. <laughs> Unfortunately, the people with the loudest voice right now are the people that are teaching the disinformation. We need to change that. The people who actually want to learn what CRT is and is not, and also want to be able to have diversity equity and inclusion education in our school system so that we can create a safer education environment for our students, all students. Those are the voices that the legislation needs to hear from because they're not hearing from those voices. They need to get a little bit louder and start showing up when the legislation is in session. They need to start writing and calling the lawmakers to say, and okay, at the very least, Mr. Lawmaker, my state, my Senate representative, educate yourself on the actual facts of critical race theory, and then come back to us and give us the truth. Yeah. That is your job as a legislator to actually speak truth, not falsehood to me, Mr. Legislator, as your constituent. Their resolution takes a position without investigation. Exactly. Well, Darlene, okay. keyboard warrior that you are, social justice <laughs> advocate, I appreciate your time coming back uh, the second day in a row to have this conversation. And uh, let's keep working on this over the summer on Radioactive, okay? Okay. Could I add something really quickly? Yes. I also serve on the um, Racial Equity and Policing Commission, Tonight, we're having a listening session. So I encourage everyone that if you are free tonight, go to our Facebook page. There's information about the listening session on the Racial Equity and Policing Commission for Salt Lake City listening session tonight. So we would love to hear from you, the public. So please join us. We'll put a link in the show notes, but what time does that run from? 7 p.m. So this show ends at seven folks and you can jump on over to the listening session on zoom or whatever the virtual platform is that you guys are using. Darlene, thank you so much for being willing to show up, speak out. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye Darlene. Now we're going to pivot to Alicia Gleed, who is with the road home. Hi Alicia. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks. How are you? Not bad. The year that was, or the year that shall not be named trademark pending. It was yeah. probably really hard on the road home. And recently you did a one by uh, a one by one virtual webinar. We're going to play a clip from that. And I wanted you to set some context for us. But for folks that don't know, because perhaps they're not in a circumstance that requires the services of the road home, please share the mission of your nonprofit. Yeah, our mission at the road home is to help people step out of homelessness and move back into our community. And so our really our goal is, is everything that we do is to help people move back home. And so we operate um, three resource centers. So the Gail Miller Resource Center for Single Men and Single Women, the Men's Resource Center for Single Men, and the Midville Family Resource Center for Families with Children. Um, in each of those resource centers, our teams work really hard with people to, one, help provide those kind of essential emergency things that people need, right? Um, we work with partners for food. Um, we receive donations from the community for in-kind items, such as like hygiene items, clothing, things like that. 
but we all have in each of those centers case managers and our teams that are working with people to help them figure out maybe what's causing them to be homeless and how can they overcome that homelessness um, and what kinds of things that we can kind of give them support to do. And then you know, a really important piece is our housing programs. We um, want to make sure that we are helping people move out of that homelessness and back into a home of their own. So we are working with people to help find places um, that are maybe like find landlords that are going to work with people and, you know, help them maybe overcome smaller barriers and even programs that are helping people who've experienced long-term homelessness um, move into a place where they can stay um, in a home of their own and stay there forever. So I know so far from July 1st to March 31st, our team has supported 2,372 people um, move into or remain in a stable home of their own. And so we really just want to help people overcome homelessness. So that was July 2020 to uh, March 2021. And, mm-hmm. you know, with COVID and with the ongoing housing crisis here in Utah, how we provide homeless services to people experiencing homelessness has really been under a microscope. And that's uh, something I really think you get into in this clip we're going to share from your recent one-on-one, one-by-one seminar and a view from the front lines. Can you kind of give us some context for this, which just happened recently online? Yes, we were so excited. So every year we host um, a one-by-one event, right? Which is really to highlight that we want to encourage people to become involved with our agency one by one and it's one by one that we help people move back home um and this year we decided that because over you know as we know the year that shall not be named i'm totally using that now i will give you all the credit um (laughs) has been so crazy for everyone you know not only did we have the pandemic there was the earthquake um there were you know inland hurricane Inland hurricane, yep, that that ripped through, that took out power. Um, And really through all of that, um, it was the support of the community that made it possible for us to continue providing services and support. And, um, you know, during this event, it it was really beautiful to hear our frontline team talk about how that made a difference, not only for them as being there every day and trying to, again, provide support for people while also trying to maybe protect their own families and things like that. Um, but also just for the people that we serve, you know, there were some beautiful stories in there about how, um, you know, the people we serve felt about people supporting them and it, and it just made their, their days. They were so excited and felt, and felt such gratitude for the support from the community. And so through all of this, really, you know, we wanted to share these stories of what was happening inside the resource centers during this time and what was happening as we were trying to help people into housing, but ultimately to kind of thank the community too, because we know it was a brutal year for everyone. And the fact that the community stepped up to help the people that we serve was so absolutely humbling for us. And just, it, it really made the world of difference to the people that we serve. So let's cut to the tape. Here's Alicia Gleed introducing the panel from One by One, a conversation about homeless services amidst a pandemic with the road home. Our panelists and moderator include Annie Brown, Housing Focused Case Manager at the Men's Resource Center, Carrie Amon, Gail Miller Resource Center Supportive Services Supervisor, Clara D. Wilson, Midville Family Resource Center Director, Alicia York, Day Shift Advocate Supervisor at the Midville Family Resource Center, Carissa Guthrie, Midville Family Resource Center Supportive Services Supervisor, Kenneth Jordan, Housing Advocate Supervisor at the Men's Resource Center, Matthew Melville, Gail Miller Resource Center Director, Mike Young, Men's Resource Director, and we are so honored to have Sarah Strang, the Road Homes Deputy Director of Crisis Services, as our moderator. Thank you again, and please enjoy our panel. Thank you, Alicia, for that wonderful introduction. Um, I have to say that as we have delved into the world of Zoom and COVID, it's provided a variety of insights, um, including for me today, feeling like this is how it would feel to be an air traffic controller if uh, I got to wear these headphones all the time. So uh, it's been really just a wonderful experience and thank you for joining us today. So we're going to take a little bit of a step back in time and we're gonna set the stage. It's early March, 2020. The world is about to be rocked by Rudy Gobert testing positive and the Utah Jazz becoming an instant national household name by shutting down the NBA. And little do we know what is in store for us. 
A week later, the largest earthquake that many of us experienced locally, for some of us, myself included, the only earthquake I have experienced, and I would be willing to have that be the only time I do, uh, hits us. So Kenneth, you're coming on shift uh, the morning of the earthquake at the MRC, unaware of what's about to hit. You're in shift change, the walls begin to shake, confusion sets in, what happens next? I recall my all of my staff telling me to get under the desk because I was just kind of sitting at the table, just looking around, trying to figure out what's going on, and everyone's telling me get under the table. Um, as soon as the shaking had kind of stopped, we all kind of went out and started telling people we need to leave, we need to go. Uh, the elevators had shut down, so we had to get our emergency uh, our emergency chairs and to get some people who are in wheelchairs or just aren't able to take the stairs down. We have to take them on their chairs. Um, but we only have so many, so we also have guests and clients with us helping us take some people down on wheelchairs. Sometimes we would grab one end of the wheelchair, they would grab the other, and we would just make our way down. Um, it was a lot of back and forth with other clients as well. Some of them didn't want to leave. Some of them just wanted to go back to bed. You know, it's interesting because in all of those times that we uh, practice what to happen for an earthquake, when it actually hits us, we're unsure what to do. Confusion sets in and uh, we had several aftershocks, some for a couple of weeks after that. And I can remember being in the case management area at the MRC and the entire building beginning to shake. Um, and I have to say that as we were going through building the MRC, uh, there were oftentimes conversations about the earthquake readiness of the building uh, and what that had been like. And I have never been more grateful for that than the morning of the earthquake and then actively being in there as well. So my hat is off uh, to all of the contractors who made sure that our buildings were as earthquake safe as possible during that time as we're looking through different things. So little did we know that that earthquake was going to be the least of our worries with what we were heading into. So following CDC guidelines, the end of March 2020, screening teams are set up. Our world is in a state of disarray as we're talking about COVID-19 and what is happening. Italy is in a state of emergency and disrepair and videos are coming out of, of people in Italy in their apartments and talking about what this pandemic has meant to them and across Europe and those different components. Uh, we begin to go into emergency mode within uh, the road home, looking at what are our essential services that we need to be setting up? How are we ensuring that we are regularly monitoring and have a pulse on what's taking place in our facilities? And so we come together and we set up screening teams. Anyone who is working in a position that is non-essential to a 24-hour facility and function, they're signing up for slots. If you're coming into a facility, your temperature is getting taken. Uh, we had members from accounting all the way through Palmer Court case managers covering the screening shifts. At this point, masks, gloves, hand sanitizers, thermometers, and cleaning products, it's a rat race to find. We're looking at everything we can to make sure that we have items on hand to increase sanitization and also to be able to take uh, temperatures on a regular basis. Uh, it's amazing how quickly a regular household thermometer uh, <laughs> runs out of use when you're using it to scan the, the foreheads of 300 plus men coming in and out of a facility every single day. Um, I have to also say my hat is off to Canyon School District uh, and Connie, such an amazing partner. We, for our families out in Midvale, uh, specifically with the kiddos, we wanted to make sure we had the infrared head thermometers versus um, the ones that go under your tongue or those different components. And uh, we were able to reach out to the school districts and they were able to get us some because you could not find them anywhere. Uh, I know at that point in time, we'd done a call out to action um, through our board and through social media. And we were able to receive thermometers through that. And it was so important that we be able to, that we were able to get those because they allowed us to know what was happening and when things did end up going in a different direction, we knew. So Mike and Clara, you guys are at the Men's Resource Center. And Mike, specifically, you've been offered a job as the director of the Men's Resource Center. You're moving in from California, and your first day is going to be April 13th. A few days before that, uh, right around April 10th, we receive notification from the health department about our first positive COVID-19 case at the MRC. 
a whirlwind starts of hour-long meetings. It doesn't matter the day or the time. They're happening on the weekends. They're happening at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. Uh, and it's a combination of health department, local government representatives, uh, TRH staff, including myself and Michelle Flynn. Uh, and we began this deep dive into Zoom and what that meant for COVID. And I can honestly tell you that as part of these meetings, um, I now have a snapshot of what Mayor Wilson's house looks like at 10.30 p.m., courtesy of this. Uh, it's a really interesting time. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, Mike, it's unlike that's the first day, unlike anything you've ever experienced when you and your new colleague, Clara, meet for the first time and hit the ground running. Yeah, it sure was, Sarah. Um, I moved back from California, my wife and I, on uh, I think the 5th or 6th of April. Uh, we knew that we were potentially seeing some positive COVID cases at the Men's Resource Center a few days after that. Um, I know Michelle and I went into the facility to meet with the health department, uh, I think on the, the Saturday before our first mass testing event on the 13th. Uh, and it, it was striking to me because it was the first time I had left my house in quite a few weeks to actually go outside and interact with other people. Um, I had been quarantining at home uh, since we moved back. I had just a little cloth mask on my face. And I'll never forget walking into the Men's Resource Center, meeting our partners from the health department who were wearing full-on gowns and gloves and uh, face shields, not just N95s, but full respirators. Uh, and I remember thinking, man, I'm a little outmatched here. I need to, I need to up my equipment game. Um, and so Michelle and I met, uh, started building a plan for what that first testing event would look like. Um, and uh, yeah, the whole time I just kept thinking, man, I could be on a beach in California right now. What am I doing back here? Um, but the 13th rolled around and um, I didn't know really anyone on the team at the Men's Resource Center. It was only the second time I had been there. Uh, and I found myself at 7 a.m. trying to gather as many folks as I could, uh, trying to get them down to the parking lot to get tested. Uh, and I remember at one point I uh, called someone aside who, who was running past me at the same time. And I said, hey, I'm looking for Clara. Um, I think I'm sharing an office with her. And she was like, oh, that's me. Um, let me show you where it is. Uh, so Clara, what do you remember about those days? Well, those days were really powerful in my um, experiences at the Men's Resource Center. Um, I was still relatively new to the agency. I had only been in that role for six months, but stepping into that role, I had been a big part of um, uh, getting uh, the move into the Men's Resource Center. So a lot of the shelter systems and things like that. And um, so by that point, I, I felt like, um, I knew the shelter very well and to see things in such disarray was, it was chaotic and kind of in a, in a dream state almost. Everyone was um, acting more on, on instinct at this point because we didn't know what to do um, necessarily. And um, th those days were composed of um, staff uh, uh, telling each other that they deserved the better mask over somebody over somebody else because of of how much guest interaction they were getting saying no you get the nice mask no you get the nice mask and based on no experience or knowledge uh, of what PPE um, was appropriate and um, all just really rallying and checking in on each other and and seeing if we were okay um, those days also consisted of just long days of tough conversations with guests. Um, some of our guests were relapsing and, and really just struggling with the news. Some of our guests were just bolting. They just didn't wanna be around anymore. Um, some of our guests were in disbelief, um, just like a, such a wide array of, of, of emotions and reactions from our guests and from our staff as well. Um, things that really stick out to me during that time is, um, again, like Sarah said, having really late night meetings and just a, a big leadership team sitting in, in my office, all collaborating together on something none of us really knew anything about. And it, it was um, kind of a pretty humbling experience for us all to look around at each other for answers when we didn't have them. And um, I, I think in one night we had developed seven different spreadsheets that we never ended up using. And um, we had learned a lot about <laughs> um, managing a pandemic kind of on our own. Of course, we had support, but um, to be fair to the community as well, nobody really knew the best way to respond in those days. 
I remember multiple layers of just uncertainty after uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we didn't know what testing was going to look like. Uh, we didn't know how many uh, guests would actually go through with getting testing uh, for this mysterious virus that we had only just heard about a, you know, several weeks prior. Um, and so once we figured out what testing looked like and, and got that first event set up, um, I remember sitting in the office until probably midnight, 1 a.m. that first week, every single night, not knowing what would happen once we got results in. And then what would happen when we identify those guests and actually connect with them? And, and what would happen when they came back from uh, the quarantine facility? And just every single next step, we had no precedent. We had no information to go off of. Um, we had great community partners with the county, um, with 4th Street Clinic, with uh, the CDC guidelines that they were passing out. But things were changing hour by hour and minute by minute. And that is just a short excerpt from One by One 2021 View from the Front Lines with the Road Home. Check tonight's show notes where we have embedded the entire YouTube video player of this conversation. Alicia Gleed from the Road Home as we wrap our conversation. Folks are coming out of hibernation to a certain degree um, and starting to look around going, I need to return to a sense of normalcy. And for many folks in Utah, which has a huge rate of volunteerism, that is helping out across the state. So how can people help the road home as we enter summer? And I know needs differ for our unsheltered population during the summer. So what can people do now? How can they get engaged with the road home? Yes. So at our Men's Resource Center and our Gail Miller Resource Center, we um, serve meals, uh, lunch and dinner, and we actually need volunteers to help us serve those meals to the people that we're serving. Um, It is a great opportunity to really meet the people that um, are experiencing homelessness. For me personally, I started as a volunteer at the Road Home, and I just fell in love with um, not only the mission and the work, but really the people that we're serving and to see um, just again, human faces with this, you know, it doesn't become just the homeless. It's real people that are trying really hard to get over like to get through this really tough period of time. So serving meals, you can sign up on our website at theroadhome.org. And if you click on get involved, there's a volunteer tab that has opportunities there. That is our biggest need right now, but there are also opportunities to provide sack lunches, um, box dinners for the families, as well as the single men. Um, and we also have our in-kind needs list. So moving into summer, you know, we need what we all need, right? Sunscreen, aloe, you know, water bottles, things like that and to really help people. So you can, again, go to our website at theroadhome.org and then click on Get Involved. And it has all of our volunteer opportunities there. Whenever we have conversations on Radioactive about housing insecurity and food insecurity, it's really brought home in stark relief how close any one of us are to losing our housing, to losing that uh, where our meals come from. And I think the last year has really brought that home to folks that may not otherwise have thought about it. And that's why it's important that nonprofits in our community like The Road Home are doing the work they do. So thank you so much. One more time, what's the website? Thank you. It's theroadhome.org. Alicia Gleed, we'll put links in the show notes so you can catch up folks and perhaps consider getting involved or helping out or donating to The Road Home. Thank you so much. I'm Laura Jones, and when we come back here on Radioactive, a conversation with Utah poet and writer Catherine Coles. Her new book, The Stranger I Become on Walking, Looking, and Writing, is set to publish next month. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and all month long, KRCL brings you Mental Health Mondays with tips and resources from local experts. Join us for the month as we help raise awareness about mental health. Find a list of resources at krcl.org. Support for KRCL comes from the Joan Trumpauer Mulholland Foundation, ending racism through education. Films, books, and materials for the classroom and organizations are available online at jtmfoundation.org. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and crew. At 8 o'clock, Emily's Mixtape, followed by Maximum Distortion at 10.30. Get your rude awakening with Liz at 3 a.m. and your brand new day with John Florence at 6 a.m. If you go to krcl.org, you can find our entire programming schedule and the last two weeks of any show, including the Radioactive Archives. It's all online at krcl.org. Nick Burns has the night off tonight, so I have the great pleasure of talking with our next guest for the rest of the hour, Catherine Coles author of the new book, The Stranger I Become, on walking, looking, and writing. 
Catherine is the author of two novels, seven collections of poems, and the memoir Look Both Ways, the recipient of grants from the NEA and the NEH and the Guggenheim Foundation. She has served as Poet Laureate of Utah and was inaugural director of the Poetry Foundation's Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. She is a distinguished professor of English at the University of Utah, and I am most grateful for the generosity she shows in sharing her work on this show. Catherine, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I want to start by saying it's always an honor to keep company with the people that you bring me together with whenever I'm on the show. I really enjoy that so very much. Well, thank you. I want to know where this book comes from, and what I love is that I'm not quite sure how to read the title, The Stranger I Become, or The Stranger I Get I Become. (laughs) And is that part of of, uh, why you chose that title? That's exactly why uh, I chose that title. And um, it's the title of the first essay in the book. And I did not think that I was uh, an essayist. Um, I didn't think that I didn't set out to write this book, but I was in the position, um, you know, as you get old and distinguished officially uh, in your life, people start asking you to do certain things that are not necessarily things that you like to do, like coming to talk about about poetry as a in a kind of scholarly way, and um, or to write an essay uh, about creativity, for example. And that's actually exactly where this book started. My dear friend. Jen Webb in Australia, who is not only a fantastic uh, poet and performer, but also has a PhD in creativity studies and does quantitative work on creativity and knows all about it. She and I met because she wanted to interview me about process for a book that she was writing. And I'll just say between us, I'll just whisper that I was kind of the outlier in her or one of the outliers in her study. But Then she came back to me and she said, would you write an essay for a special issue of a journal that I'm editing about creativity? And I said, Jen, you're the expert in creativity. I don't know anything. (laughs) Creativity. I just do what I do. And she said, well, what if I told you that you could write any, you don't have to write a scholarly essay. You can write any kind of essay you want about what you do. Uh, And I said, oh, yeah, okay, maybe maybe I can do that. And the first essay came out of that. And then what I had learned from that was that when people came and asked me, you know, can you write an essay about Emily Dickinson or whatever, and I didn't really feel like it because I wanted to do my creative work, I could just whip around and say, well, I'll do it if I can write a, a creative work and not a scholarly work about that. See, so you do know your creativity. I guess I did. <laughs> so that's where every single essay in this book came from was that somebody asked me to write about something um, that I probably would have said no to uh, otherwise, um, but they gave me permission to do this other. Permission. Interesting you should say permission. I think of someone at the stage of career that you're at wouldn't require permission, but it just shows you in the creative process, we kind of write ourselves into a corner sometimes. Right. Or, or we allow the world in with its definitions and boxes, right, to provide us with the options instead of saying, well, I'm not happy with with that option exactly, but I'm more than happy to try to do this other thing. You write in the first essay also about trying to find your voice as a young poet. You reflect upon that. So I'm wondering if you could uh, share a bit from your first essay. Um, I, of course, have given you my notes, but I want you to share what you'd like to share um, about this, this, this thought of finding your voice, of walking, looking, and writing. What would you like to share? Um, and this is the essay that I wrote for my friend, uh, Jen, and it's actually dedicated to her. Um, because she gave me permission. And it also begins with an epigraph from my good friend, the poet Sharon Bryan, one of my favorite poems of hers called Use Capricious in a Sentence. So this is from The Stranger I Become. And Sharon says, walking is good for thinking, but not vice versa. And as a person who walks and falls down from time to time, I will tell you that, confirm that that's true. I'm known to walk a lot by modern standards on most days for seven or more miles. Fitness isn't the point, at least not all of it. 
About goats, Sharon Bryan tells us, they keep their balance by staying in motion. And balance isn't all physical, at least for me. Walking spins ideas free. Its rhythm puts me in touch with myself. And the distance I travel reminds me I am always loose on the planet. Setting a pace, sallying forth, reminds me, mind comprising as it does every part of my body, skin, eyes, ears, and not least my heart, which tells me I am frightened or in love before I know to ask. My senses, not my brain, create the ongoing sense of change I know as mind. Without my moving body, my brain would be a dull gray blob, inert, like it or lump it. Walking enacts this change and its constancy. Philosophers have Heidelberg's Philosophenweg, or Philosopher's Walk, which is open also to physicists and mathematicians, many of whom are great walkers, and even to poets. You can reach it from Heidelberg Station on foot if you're willing to walk 40 minutes or so through the less picturesque suburbs to get there. From it, you can contemplate the ruined castle on the other side of the valley and consider how destruction comes to all bodies, often so slowly we don't notice. That is just so much of what has been on my mind over the last year and also dealing with um, a parent who is, is aging. And you bring this book full circle, by the way, to that notion of dissolution and also... Emily Dickinson throughout this book, you have some touchstones of poets that you revere and bring into your conversation, The Stranger I Become, on walking and looking and writing. Um, can you tell me a bit about Dickinson in your life? Um, yeah, I, Dickinson is somebody who I always sort of officially admired um, because, you know, one does. Officially, and that sounds performative, Catherine. Very performative, performatively admired. Um, you know, she came to me as a children's poet. She was read to me when I was a child. And I think that for many years, um, I viewed her through the lens, the sort of constructed lens we had of her as this sort of maiden poet who was a little bit uptight and who didn't leave her room. Um, you know, was agoraphobic, et cetera, et cetera. And I sort of let all of that color my idea of her. So even though I admired her, I didn't really go deep on her. And, you know, she wasn't, once I was no longer a child, she wasn't taught to me by my male, almost exclusively all male That's teacher. a whole nother subject so, about who gets taught. A whole nother ballgame. And so I discovered Dickinson when I decided to teach her myself, I discovered her in this other way and from this other point of view. And I came to realize um, it was really the publication of this amazing book called The Envelope Poems, which gives you Dickinson's handwritten um, versions of the poems uh, in which, for example, she often gives you as a reader the option of four or five different words. Um, it's like, she was like the first digital poet, right? Where oh, you yeah. could pick and, and choose, choose your own experience. You call yeah. her my perfect stranger. Yeah, that's exactly right. So any of these words, any of these words will do. You decide and or best case, you figure out how to accommodate all of them in that single place um, that I've put them in. And so I began to understand her imagination as wild um, and incredibly unleashed. And the more that I read her, the more she revealed herself to me as a poet, very, very different from the one who had been presented to me. You bring her into your book, The Stranger I Become, and you also indicate in the way it's typeset that you are pulling from these handwritten poems, yeah. not the, I, I'm going to call them translations for publication, right? Where yeah. other people, I'm guessing men to a certain extent also, made a choice on behalf of Emily Dickinson on how to present her work to the world. Yeah, so um, that's exactly what happened that, um, you know, she and, and very famous editors. And, and I actually have to give some of them, you know, Hugh Johnson and then Franklin um, after him credit for at least um, 
going back to the originals for the punctuation because the early editors repunctuated her poems for her. They didn't believe when she put in a dash that she meant a dash and not a period and not a comma. They regularized her capitalizations um, and then they did choose for her. And it's not even just that she'll give you these word stacks. She'll also, she has a little symbol. She'll put a little plus sign um, and at a, a part of a section and she'll mark it. And then you start to realize that what that means is there's a whole replacement section over here. I get um, what you mean now by uh, the original digital poet, Emily Dick. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, except that she didn't, right? She didn't have the technology. <laughs> um, and, she, uh, and she was really um, enthralled. And so were her editors to the printed page and the printing press. And so the other thing that we have right now is the ability to have access to facsimiles. And if you go to the Emily Dickinson archives um, online, right, you can, can see for, not for all, but for many, many of her poems, the original handwritten versions of those poems. Talking with Catherine Coles, former Utah poet laureate, and her new book, The Stranger I Become on Walking, Looking, and Writing, publishes next month. In fact, you can see Catherine Coles in a virtual conversation online Thursday, June 3rd, presented by the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. And she will be in conversation with fellow poet Catherine Coles, author of Maps and Transcripts of the Ordinary World. We explain for our listeners the relationship with the other Catherine Coles. Spelled just a bit differently, but sounds just the same. You are two different people. We are two different people, and I first met her when I was calling Roll for my sophomore-level creative writing class a million years ago, probably almost 20 years ago. And uh, I got to her name, and I hesitated, and I said, Catherine Cowles? And I heard this quiet voice from the back of the room say, Catherine Coles. And I looked up, and I found her, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And, <laughs> yeah, and that was before I had ever seen a poem. So I didn't know that she was going to be a wonderful poet. And I didn't know that she was going to get both her master's and her PhD at the University of Utah and that she would be in my classes for many years and that our mail would get mixed up. Um, and that I would come to call her the Catherine Coles for whom I am the other Catherine Coles. So that is coming up on on June 3rd. And in fact, part of this also is to support her in that her book published during COVID kind of got buried. It it got published literally the week that the shutdown happened. And she had this whole book tour uh, arranged and laid out. And um, I happened to hear about that. I think on Facebook, she was sort of lamenting. Um, and thinking about how to get back out again. And so I emailed her and I said, well, why don't we launch together? Well, in, in closing our time here uh, with you, Catherine, I, I want to talk about this connection between walking, looking, and writing. You, you have, you're known for bringing the environment into your work from Antarctica. Did I say that right? Did I get the right one? <laughs> and to bees, to the landscape outside your own home, and I was just hoping you could share something with us that we could uh, close with along those lines. Maybe paint a picture for us uh, with your selection from out your your window. So one of the things that happens in this essay is that I have a treadmill that's set in front of a Florida ceiling window that looks out over City Creek Canyon. Um, as you will realize, I'm a very, very lucky person. So I can um, walk on my treadmill and work and be watching the changing landscape outside. The canyon, along with its bird population, changes season by season. The screech owls that returned to our nesting box in the fall will fledge chicks by June and scatter into summer darkness. The snow covering everything now in its great blankness will give way to melt and detail, then to buds and leaves that will eventually flame and fall, to grasses that will emerge in soft green, then go gold and dry to tinder as fire season arrives. Changes occur not only seasonally, Hour by hour, even moment by moment, the light that defines this landscape shifts and slants, brightens and shadows, drags its bright tail across the mountains. Every time I follow my eyes outward then, I am transported. 
not only out of my own head, which can forget that its very machinations make it alien to itself, but also into a place made constantly new by the turn of the planet. Catherine Cole's reading from her new book, The Stranger I Become, on walking, looking, and writing. And I wanted to just quickly talk about this connection between your brain and walking and what it does for you. One of the things that you say in this book is, I carry my memory, my imagination, and my desire. Um, I think that that's true. And this is especially true um, of landscapes that are familiar to us. And I also talk about walking in cities that I love um, and walking the same routes over and over again in this book. Um, Because as I'm looking, and I'm looking out this window right now that I'm talking about in the book, and as I look out, I'm automatically, the brain does this comparing it with the the way it looked yesterday, the way it looked in the winter, right, which is different. And so that's where memory comes in. And I'm thinking about what's changing and whether my neighbors across the canyon have done something really ridiculous to a house um, or, right, something like that. Memory. So I'm thinking about what is happening, how that change that change is being manifested in the present. I'm trying to be in the moment and to understand and experience this landscape in the moment, but my memory is there and present all the time. And I'm also thinking about um, how the seasons will change and what I would like to do um, in this space tomorrow. Probably what I'm going to do in this space 10 minutes from now when you and I stop talking and I get up from my chair and I move into another place in my house. I had my run a little while ago, so I'm a little bit hungry right now. Um, right, So the body is constantly manifesting its desire uh, in that space all the time. And when you're walking in this space, you have a destination. You have a place you want to arrive, even as you're trying to be present in the space you're passing through at that moment. Well, I can't let you go without hearing some poetry. Um, well, do you want to hear a Dickinson poem? Sure. Whatever you'd like to share, either from the book or your or your own work outside of the book. But again, I want to remind folks that it's June 3rd. The King's English presents online Catherine Cole's The Stranger I Become. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, so folks can sign up and check that out for themselves. So why don't I read an, an actual poem? And, you know, you talked about me as a nature poet, and, and I haven't actually, um, believe it or not, thought of myself um, in this way as a nature poet particularly. But I like to go outside, right? And I write about what I'm looking at, and I write about what I perceive. And I also write quite a lot about science. Um, so nature with a capital N, right? I used to always say, yeah, I'm a nature. I study nature the way Newton and Galileo studied nature, not just the way, you know, that a nature writer goes out and becomes rhapsodic about it. Uh, so I think I'd write, like to read a poem that actually began in a consideration of my discovery that deer see blue extremely intensely. And so this began in a sort of scientific idea, scientific concept, and then it turns into, I would actually say even an eco poem, um, just because you can't go outside anymore without writing an eco poem. Uh, It's called You Won't Find Consolation. You won't find consolation or The deer, nearly colorblind, see blue better than we do, more blue than we know. A blue, I am not consoled, lives beyond me. Imagine their sky, saturated. How do they bear it? And the alpine lake where they drink in summer, glacier-fed, reflecting back it all back. Plus, consider the glacier, blue at heart, deep frozen for millennia, blew its core and vanishing in your lifetime. A rush, a trickle, this is how it goes. Around the lake, boulders harden themselves, green firs, and there, a perfect center, the lake's clear, unreadable eye. What a way to end, Catherine Coles. Thank you so much for speaking with us on Radioactive tonight. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And that's our show. My thanks to Catherine Coles. And we'll put a link in the show notes where you can catch up with Catherine, including the June 3rd virtual talk with the other Catherine Coles. 
on the King's English Bookshop virtual platform. My thanks as well to Alicia Gleed of The Road Home and community activist Darlene McDonald and our volunteer on Wednesday nights, Natalie Benoit and Nick Burns, who had the night off. Don't forget, Salt Lake City Racial Equity and Policing Commission has its listening session starting at 7 p.m. online tonight. A link in the show notes at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones. Have a great night and thanks for listening.